Welcome back to another Cold Fear podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Mulkey. First, have to apologize for the lack of uploads. It's been about four weeks since I've uh, uploaded the last episode with Jack Tackle, and I'm definitely trying to get on the train of every two week uploads. Um, just had a lot going on. Boy, the, the Bozeman Ice Festival happened, and then uh, putting on the Wyoming Ice Festival event. I've been to a lot of ice festivals, but I have never run my own. And that takes a lot of work. So uh, kudos to all those people out there running ice festivals. Uh, never knew how much work went into those. Uh, but if you uh, didn't make it here for the Wyoming Ice Festival, it was a great event. Uh, put it on your calendar for next year. Uh, I think one of the things that really stands out about the Wyoming Ice Festival is for those people looking to just come to a festival and also just climb, maybe not take clinics, this is your festival. Uh, a lot of people came and were so surprised that there was so much ice to climb and they never saw a clinic. Um, and that is kind of key because, well, one, we didn't run a lot of clinics in the actual valley. Um, and so that left hundreds of climbs to be out there for. So, uh, yeah, in fact, I don't think there was even lines on High on Boulder, Mean Green, any of the classics. So uh, if you're looking to attend a festival, but you also just want to climb a lot, not take clinics, uh, the Wyoming Ice Festival is a good one for you. But also if you're looking to take a clinic, and uh, you want to come and climb in one of the best places in the North America and even the world, I'll say, for ice climbing, put Wyoming Ice Festival next January, put it on your calendar. All right. Uh, last housekeeping piece here. Um, if uh, you're looking for some Wyoming Ice Festival swag, I got a couple of messages on that. I just added those to the Cold Fear store. So there is Cold Fear merch. There's also Wyoming Ice Festival merch, some cool hats, shirts, even some glasses. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for some Cold Fear or Wyoming Ice Festival swag, there is some on the shop tab on the Cold Fear website. So check that out. All right. I got a good one for, for you guys. Joe Josephson is on the podcast today. Sat down with him during the Bozeman Ice Festival. Uh, if you're not familiar with JoJo's name, um, I mean... Look at a pick up a guidebook of winter dance, uh, pick up highlight, uh, Canadian uh, guidebook, Canadian ice. I mean, he has done a lot in the guidebook realm, but before he started writing guidebooks, he did a lot of climbing. He did the first ascent of some pretty notable climbs in Canada on the trophy wall, um, shared some really great stories with me. Uh, I mean, the one that stood out was him soloing the Grand Central Kalar and, and falling. Uh, definitely want to listen to that one. Um, but Jojo is, uh, definitely earned his, um, name in the ice climbing history books and, uh, has a lot to share. So, uh, sit down, relax, enjoy this one. If you like it, please share it on social media, tag at cold fear. And as always, if you like the podcast, please give us a rating and, uh, share it with your friends. So, all right. Thank you guys. Hopefully you're on the road to go ice climbing somewhere. And uh, we're yeah halfway through the season here, so get after it. All right. All right. Uh, welcome to the Cold Fear Podcast, Joe Josephson. Thanks for uh, joining me today. We are sitting here at Friday of the Bozeman Ice Festival in December. It was snowing out the window here, but uh, thanks for joining me today, Joe. Well, thanks for the invite, Aaron. It's uh, great. This is my uh, first podcast ever. And I can't believe that this is your first podcast. 
Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and you're the first one to invite me, so I'm, you know, thanks. <laughs> and I'm honored. I'm honored to have you here, and and really appreciate it. And for anybody, anybody listening here, uh, you know, Joe Josephson, um, very well known for his guidebooks, also uh, known for really his, I guess, for a lot of first ascents in the Canadian Rockies, as well as highlight. Uh, also known most recently, maybe for your work in the Bozeman Ice Festival. Um, and really, I think even to this day, nobody has done anything Canadian Rockies guidebook wise, as far as print goes. Oh, I don't know. There's been some select guys. Is there some select ones now? I, okay. I don't know. I, Yours was like a total though. Well, it yeah, like- it was ice climbing specific. And then Sean Isaac came out with a dry tooling, oh, ice yeah. climbing guide that filled in a lot of gaps. And then he, that's out of print now too. And there's been, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on up there. <laughs> I get I get a call every now and again. Someone yeah. saying they're going to do it or whatever. And then I don't know. I keep waiting for someone to happen and something yeah. to happen, but I don't know. I mean, there's just a little bit of ice up there. Oh, yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think where I'd like to kind of start is really, let's start at the beginning for you is like, when did you, when did you start ice climbing? When I moved to the Canadian Rockies. <laughs> uh I grew up here in Montana in a little town called Big Timber, about 60 miles from here, and born and raised. I, I never spent any time in Highlight or Bozeman because at the time there wasn't much here. It was just a little cow town, college town, and all my family were in eastern Montana, So, and in the Beartooth, we had a family cabin. So I'd spend all my time that direction in the Beartooth. So I like to say I was born in Big Timber, but raised in the Beartooths. And... You know, I, I love for the mountains started there. You know, I grew up just hiking and fishing. Well, fishing, hiking to get to fishing. And then I just got interested in hiking. And then I was like going from over, you know, from lake to lake over the top of the mountain to get to them. Yeah. And, and I just stopped carrying my fly rod after a while and just cared more about being out in the mountains. And I didn't even know climbing really existed. Uh, I mean, there's legendary stories of, of Pat Callis. You might even hear it in this film this weekend, but in Jack Tackle, who I know you've talked to, there's these legendary stories of them in the Beartooth, so these storms that came in and stuff. And I remember those storms as a kid. I was there at our cabin when it snowed a f- two feet on July 4th, you know, and they were up on oh, the mountains. Man. You know, I probably walked by all those guys on the trails, you know, not even knowing. I didn't even know climbing shops existed. I didn't know there was any climbing magazine. Didn't know anything about it until I went to college. And in Missoula, as a physics major, but I was really bad at calculus. So, you know, and back then, everyone just worked on bombs. You know, it was, you know, that's what Star Wars, you know, was during Reagan and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So I just wasn't into into that. But so I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I, I had a friend that I uh, used to run track against in high school who was a rock climber, Christian Apple still is. He's here in town, a physical therapist climbs really well. Um, and, uh, he was a rock climber and I was like, so I kind of, you know, gravitated towards him and wanted to learn more. And he'd been ice climbing. He was the only person I'd ever known that had ever gone ice climbing, probably down at rock Creek falls or something in the, you know, down out of red lodge, you know, grade two, <laughs> Or some actually, I think it was on a road cut near Shepherd, Montana, along the Yellowstone or some bank. Anyway, he's like, "Why would you want to go ice climbing? It's just cold, wet, and mortally frightening." 
<laughs> you know, he was a rock climber. I mean, it was a decent point there. You know, and 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 so, I just like oh, I was like, no, I think I think I'll really enjoy it. So fast forward a couple of years, uh, I found out about this outdoor leadership program at the University of Calgary. It's called Outdoor Pursuits. It was in the phys ed department. Um, I didn't even know the Canadian Rockies had ice climbing. I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea it was the Mecca and the Medina of ice climbing. So I, I ended up just transferring because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and school. So I just found out about it from a long story. But I found out about the, the program there. It was unique. There was nothing else quite like it. The guy who ran it was Bill March, who a uh, Scottish, big Bill March, famous uh, Scottish climber. was. He might have been the first person to ever front point on an ice oh, climb. Oh, really? Huh. And he was sort of the, he was one of several instructors, but he was sort of the bigger than life one and uh, had led the first Canadian Everest expedition. And he was like a legend in the ice climbing world. And so obviously I, I, I get there to Calgary and I meet all these people that they're all still my best friends to this day, really. And, um, but we were all kind of new to climbing. And what year was this? 1987. 1987. Yeah. So I, uh, I just like, oh, you go, you know, ice climbing is just one of these outdoors pursuits that you do. And so, you know, go to rock climbing and canoeing and kayaking. A lot of them were kayakers, which I was never very good at and couldn't roll with my life depended on it. So <laughs> that's kind of a key for kayaking. Yeah. Yeah. You know all yeah. about that. Right. So, you know, I scared myself enough doing that and realized it was too out of control for my taste. But, uh, I really sort of took to ice climbing. I bought, I bought some used gear. So I bought these Castinger plastic boots that had like the insole had a full shank and sole on it. So you could take them out and walk around in them. Oh, wow. And, and then you put the plastic. So they were like clunky as hell. And, and, uh, they were just awful, but they were used and they were cheap. I had no money and, um, bought a couple of years. I bought a, a low big bird ice tool and a Simone Chacal ice tool, which is shorter brilliant tool love i mean just it was one of the first sort of drooped axe drooped pickaxes i think back in the oh, day oh really yeah okay straight shaft but it had the droop yeah, to it yeah 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 and then the big the jeff low the low hummingbird was long it was like 59 yeah. centimeters had a tube pick remember that you probably didn't even know what that is there's like yeah i remember that I, I i mean i have i've seen one yeah, but, and, yeah before and, and it had the round ads so you, know, you got to be careful you Oh really? Yeah. Around ads. Yeah. Huh, okay. They're awful. <laughs> they just they just stick in the ice. They don't actually chop anything. They just like plug into the ice like you'd oh, think boy. they would. Anyway, so I started climbing and my bet uh Alex Taylor was a year ahead of me in the program and he took me out climbing um on Bow Falls, which you gotta ski into. So my very first ice climb, we have to ski into Bow Falls, which is off the Icefields Parkway. Gosh, I can't remember how far it is, but it's it's a ways. It's a couple miles at least, you know, skiing yeah. through avalanche terrain. The climb itself is pretty safe. High volume climb. Classic. And were you a skier at that point? No, it, it, hell no. Oh, okay. No, I'd never skied right. in my life. 
I mean, my dad had given, bought us like old Nordic skis that you got to like wood skis, you know, you got to put your own base on them, Yeah, you know, and that was like pain in the ass. I never did that. So I, I'd never downhill skied, you know, whatever. So I bought some, bought some or borrowed, I don't even know now, but touring gear, like Silverettes, old touring gear. That was always part of the kit for us back in the day was that there were no trails into anything. You had to ski everywhere. So just like you have to get a rope and a harness and a, and boots and cramp on all your ice climbing gear. That was part of the standard gear was touring gear. Oh, like, you know, and finding bindings that would work with your climbing yeah. boots. Right. And, yep. and, and it was a challenge. Uh, Emery's was this French brand that I still have some to this day that I use. And, um, they were and like been before the Silverettas. Yeah. Yeah. The Silverettas. There, there the were 90s? Silverettas, some early versions or so. I don't remember, okay. but, Emery's are what I, I remember first starting with. So anyway, we skied in there and it was literally minus 30 and Alex cracked the front of his boot. Um, the plastic shell of his, his Koflax, white Koflax, which are like the, one of the all time, you know, they're the, yeah. one of the goat Mount Rushmore of, of climbing boots. And uh, so we didn't finish the climb. And then by the time we got back to the car, I realized my boots were broken as well. So we both cracked our plastic shell climbing boots. It was so cold the first it was so time. So cold. But I was hooked. Really? Yeah, I was totally hooked. I ended up buying a pair of wood shanked leather single leather boots. Galibiers. And that's what huh. I climbed with for like three years. Really? Um and uh they were used to and I used them until I broke the wood one of the wood shanks broke. So it's just a leather boot with a wood shank, yeah, basically? Full, full wood shank. Full wood no shank, No flex though. whatsoever. Okay. Um, big and clunky as fuck. Yeah. But, wa- I mean, warm? No. No, okay. No. I didn't think so. No. Okay. Because a plastic would definitely still be you know, superior. I, I'd, buy, I'd like buy these chintzy, not even more chintzy, like the old original Chenard over boots, you know, that had a cable. Yeah. I don't, you probably don't remember. But they used a cable that you were supposed to like cinch down around your welt to hold them on. And they never worked. You know, no. we'd... we'd finagle stuff like that like crazy all the time yeah but and so you'd have been like what 20 i was 20 early 20s 20 okay yeah all right yeah i was born in 1967 okay um and uh and so what had happened is i just so i was just going along climbing on the weekends going to school you know getting to know everybody but 1988 was the calgary olympics and so we had this great this amazing building that our program was housed in because it was all built for the olympics like the end it was like one of the first indoor skating ovals was right there and everything so the entire school shut down for the olympics for two weeks because it was the all the dorms were uh the athlete village right i didn't go to a single event um all my friends went to joshua tree i didn't have any money i remember calling up my parents going can I, can I, can you send me $300 so I can go to Joshua tree on this, you know, for two weeks? And they're like, what? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it wasn't about the money. It's just like, yeah. what? Like going to Joshua tree, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. They never You're really, they never really had a problem with my climbing, but they might've, I don't know. Now that I, yeah. think, now that I tell that story, but yeah. anyway, so I was like in Calgary, um, I was living off campus, so I had a place to live and everything. But I ran into a guy from 
I got I might have his name somewhere in some buried in some journal somewhere. I need to go find it because I don't even know his name, but he was, he worked at Boeing. I know that much. And he was in the Rockies to ice climb and he needed a partner. So we connected and just started climbing. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, there were a lot of Boeing Seattle type client, you know, that was a big, there's a lot of climbers in Seattle in general, but a lot of them worked at Boeing and different things like that. Huh. And they'd come up with conduit, you know, that we used to use for repels oh, yeah. and it'd be like titanium, you know? <laughs> oh, titanium. Yeah. Was nice. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that, that kind of leads into another story I wanted to share later, but, uh, we just started climbing and I ended up leading Carlsberg column at the end of that 10 days or whatever it was. It was my first grade five. And we're talking about your first lead is within. No, like your, no. So okay. I'd done, so I'd done my first lead was at, uh, the Canmore junkyards. Okay. My good friend, John Irvine, who's, um, still involved in the outdoor industry. Uh, he, uh, he's actually the one who gave me the nickname Jojo, I think. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, cause no one called me that. I was never called that growing up. You're in my phone as Jojo. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, you know, we, so yeah, me and my call, my room, my college mates, we'd go climbing, you know, King Creek seeps, Canmore junkyards. I think we might've done just, I've got a list somewhere, but just a bunch of easy, you know, grade threes and stuff. So I'd been leading a little bit, but I started climbing harder with this guy. And this is still within your first year of climbing? Very first year of ice okay. climbing. And um, so it's funny because all the, everyone came back from Joshua Tree and, and they were all like, excuse me, have been, you know, they climbed things like Illusion Dweller, which, you know, it's this amazing 10D. I, I've done it since, but like, that was a big deal for all of us, you know, getting to go, you know, yeah. those are like legendary like climbs and um, figures on a landscape and stuff like that. And stuff that I always did later, but I didn't know much about it at the time, but they were really jazzed. And I, you know, as they should have been, <laughs> it was just like, I just remember like being really bummed out about that. I didn't get to go and I didn't get to do all that. And they asked me what I did and I just told them and they were like, Holy shit, Joe's climbing grade five. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It didn't even occur to me that I was, I, we were just climbing and that's how we ended up doing it for years is that like today people like things come in early and they're jumping on like the hardest climbs possible, right? Like the yeah. first day of the season. Cause everyone's so fit back then you'd start climbing. And then before you know it by February, January or February, you're climbing grade six, but you didn't start on the grade start six, <laughs> you know, you usually like, we just climbed as much as you can. And before you know it, you look back and like, Oh wow, I did some cool routes. Yeah. You know, they're all cool, but, um, there's never, nobody was training on tools. Dry no, tool. God, no, happening. there were no gyms. There were no like, rock yeah. gyms. Yeah. There was a concrete rock wall in our building at university of Calgary. And that was like groundbreaking. It was like concrete panels with rocks that stick out and cracks between the panels. Oh. Might, I don't know if it's still there or not, but it was, huh. you know, in these big, like flat, overhangs at the top like concrete rebar <laughs> overhangs that you'd have to get over and that was it yeah you know the closest thing we do to training is we'd, we'd we'd get in there and we'd set up a top rope and one of us would climb to the top and they're just vertical that's it there's no no uh nothing overhanging except yeah. for those things but we'd set up the top and it's only like 10 meters high so not even that 
15 maybe they weren't even very tall yeah one of us would go up and then we'd tie in short and then we'd climb up and down like a slingshot Oh, right just to stay on the wall to get endurance until they <laughs> saw us and then they kick us out yeah but um so there were rules even then but uh so anyway um so by the end of that season i'd just done all this ice climbing and i was just hooked yeah right and i used that same gear and i actually climbed um polar circus at the end of that year wow um there were two things that were really notable about that season. Um, yeah, climbing polar circus. And I had to talk my friend into it. He, this college, this college mate, um, Dudley, he, he was like, he's like, oh, I want to, I'm going to hitch a train from Calgary to Vancouver for the weekend. I'm like, what? Just for the experience. I had to talk him into it to like go climb polar circus. Right. I couldn't find partners, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so we got to do that. And I remember coming back to Montana and I saw, that summer uh, or later at some point, I remember talking to, to Rob Hart, a dear friend who over in Red Lodge, who passed away a few years ago, but um, now, but he's like, you did Polar Circus. That's amazing. How many days did it take you? And I was like, Oh, about nine hours. <laughs> Cause it was right at that transition where it yeah. used to take people days. And then, yeah. and, you know, it was kind of a thing. And, and, uh, yeah, so it was just really, I just took to it. And um, when I arrived in the Rockies, and, and this would be maybe questions for someone like Barry Blanchard, but I remember going to, there was a, there was a shop there called Wild Boys that was founded by Dave Cheeseman, who's famous alpine climber from South Africa, but cut his, you know, made a big, did the first descent of the North Twin with Barry. and Okay first descent of the east face of Faye and and east face of cinnaboyne and like <clears throat> a whole bunch of stuff lots of amazing rock climbs and he just passed away the year before on the hummingbird ridge on alaska in the yukon and then brian wallace was a well-known rock climber who died in this sort of basically a tornado a hurricane came through calgary in the middle of the summer and this big storm hit them while they were on this big north rock climbing north face and he passed away. And then Brian, uh, um, Ian Bolt and Dan Guthrie, two other Banff climbers were killed on Foraker all in about a year's time or less. Wow. So the community up there, which, um, to this heart, to this day is like really dear to my heart. They, they, they were like devastated. Right. And, uh, I kind of come in and, and I'm getting to know a lot of these people. A lot of them are my classmates at school, but then there's this, the Calgary climbing club and the, um, Calgary, Calgary mountain club, CMC and a bunch of folks. Sean Doherty was a student. And so I got to know, getting to know him. He wrote the Alpine climbing guide. So we're all kind of in this world. And, but, but my point of all those three deaths, I looking back, I felt like there wasn't a lot of motivation for ice climbing in the community. You know, like there was a bit of a lull. Barry had been to, you know, with Mark Twyde, he'd been to Everest and then a bunch of big routes that Dave had been doing. But then there was kind of this like period where, um, you know, the Jeff Marshall had done the, you know, Riptide, first ascent of Riptide and the Terminator had been done a few years prior. So these big ice climbs that were really famous. Um, but it just felt like there wasn't 
a lot of like people out there going for it on alpine yeah. climbing or ice climbing. <clears throat> and the gear was still pretty shitty. I was say the gear would have been pretty shitty, but and I can see how that amount of loss and that kind of a time frame would create kind of a pause. Yeah, for those that have been like in it. But you're probably in your early 20s, and you can conquer the world. So, well, I I, <laughs> I didn't feel that. I didn't feel like I could conquer anything. I just wanted yeah. to go ice climbing, uh. you know. I and so I I'm there, and so I'm I felt like my whole point is I was kind of in the wrong place at the right time, like. I don't want to say right place because people, you know, have passed, yeah. but I, I sort of came up at a time when the gear was just starting to change and there wasn't anyone else looking to do first ascents. I guess that's my whole point yeah. is there was just like routes to do all over the place um, that I didn't have to get up any earlier to go get the first ascent up. Yeah. You know, or worry about it. They were just, I'd go out every weekend and start doing first ascents. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and there was people that helped me get there, like Carl Nagy, rest in peace. I'll never forget, he my, did my first first ascent with him. And uh, after sleeping in an outhouse at the Takaka Falls Trailhead, <laughs> you know, that's what we used to do back then in the day, you know. No, no sprinter vans. Yeah, no sprinter vans back then. And I have to imagine, like, I mean, given your age, and you were also very new to climbing at that point, that you... You didn't have the history of uh, partners that you had lost. You also didn't have a history of all the dangers that were probably there that you just were kind of like, I'm going to go climb and this is just what I want to go do. So your your head isn't wrapped around all of those things that are out there that are trying to kill you. You're just motivated to go climb new stuff. Uh, actually, I, I don't actually don't think that's accurate. You think you, yeah, you, you I had, had a pretty good idea. sense of this shit's dangerous. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that was kind of drilled into I think us. That's... That was drilled into us early. So my oh, the okay. first time I ever went climbing, I was actually a kid. Bruce Anderson, Dr. Bruce Anderson, he had a cabin at East Rosebud, and I was 15, and I got introduced to him. He was in the 10th Mountain Division, and he took me over to some little rock slab above East Rosebud Lake and put me on a rope. And we climbed and we repelled off in the like you know, in the rainstorm and there's lichen and everything. So, and so I, but he, I remember, I'll never forget. The, he said, the first thing to never forget is never lose your fear. And I've never forgotten that because it's kept me alive. And it's not in this like gripped kind of way, like, oh my God, I'm just afraid. But it's, and it's defined my climbing from ever since, from the get go, is that. I'm always looking around. I'm always thinking about where I am, awareness, and it's and it's and it, I think it's you know that kind of emotional intelligence of being self-aware and self-regulating has kept me alive. It's made me successful in a lot of things that I do. But um, I'm always contemplating, you know, where I where I am on a mountain. What's going on? How do I? improve my systems you know i'm always thinking about the next thing like you'll see if you go out climbing with me i i'm never not just when people pull the ropes that's the one thing that's noise like if i'm the first one down i'm down there and i'm sorting out the ropes and getting them so that they're separated and, and everything out of the way and then whenever i'm like the second one down people are just standing there talking and the ropes are a mess i'm like what the hell are y'all doing here why aren't you like doing something right so i i I've always been very um, systems oriented and like really, I'm not a gearhead at all. Like I don't 
give a crap about gear. I don't yeah. think about it. I don't get obsessive about it. I mean, I think about it just enough, right? But yeah. Um, but I'm always thinking about how I'm using it and yeah. what's next. And so, I I think I learned early on that climbing's dangerous. So do you think that somebody instilled that into you? Like, I mean, was there that somebody Bruce, you started Dr. with? Dr. Bruce Anderson, never lose your fear. And, and, and it's, it's always about, and like the, the perfect example is in the Canadian Rockies where you can be on a ledge one minute and that next minute that ledge is gone, right? It ha- you know, and unexpectedly. And so I'm always thinking about stuff like that. Like, hmm. not, you know, I'm not out there frozen about it and petrified, but I'm thinking, you know, what could happen here or there? You know, what, how do yeah. I want to set this up? And so I've always just been, I don't know, it's just been in my DNA. I wonder if also maybe, in your, I mean, growing up around the Beartooths, obviously you grew up around the mountains. You also knew mountains were, even if you weren't climbing them, then you knew things could happen. Well, that's a good, that yeah, helped. that's a nice, nice thought, nice reminder, because I'm convinced one of the reasons that I was really successful in mountaineering, alpine climbing, is that I had what you call mountain sense. Yeah. I used to study those Beartooth maps, the Alpine and Cook City Quad. I knew every elevation, every line, every name, every lake. I've been to most of them. Well, not really, actually. There's a lot I haven't been to, but I've been all over. Yeah. Excuse me. And and I learned how to interpret terrain and get around and, and, and find my way from lake to lake over the mountains. So it's that mountain sense that I think really drove my climbing it wasn't about how hard something was Hmm. it was about the experience of getting there and maybe that's part of that guidebook brain that i have like i'm all about you know the climb's good and it's you want to go do beautiful climbs and hard climbs but i'll tell you i've never once in my life done a climb whether it's a first descent or anything and said or even a grade two you know it's been done a million times i've never once done a climb and said man i wish that was harder (laughs) Hmm, I'm trying to think if I've thought that. I don't know that I can say that for everything, but that that also gives a good idea of like the connection that you had with just like the experience that it wasn't about. You just want. It sounds like you just you just enjoyed climbing. Simply. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. by um, you know during school, yeah, I just kind of kept climbing all winter, every winter as much as I could. You know, I would rock climb and alpine climb in the summer. Did you have any, like, I mean, to, in your first year to go from not leading at all in your first time throwing a tool to then leading grade five, was there any close calls in between that time frame? Or, I mean, because the equipment you had, just like, I mean, come on, the equipment was not awesome. <laughs> like, I mean, climbing Water Ice 5 then is, is was a very different thing than I think. If an ice climber starts today and they think of Water Ice 5, yeah, it's you know it's hard and and it and it it's you can be capable of doing water ice five relatively quickly, but back then, man, I mean the gear sucked. Like yeah, it just so, wasn't as easy and or near as safe. So yeah, I mean we use Dockstein mitts with these nylon over mitts that you get from Mountain Equipment Co-op, and then a piece of insulate in the back of the back of the hand to insulate and also keep from bashing your knuckles. And we use just regular webbing that you put your hand in and twist the fuck out of it to wrap locked in around your hand and and then the ice screw we carried a third tool like a short hammer with a pick on it and so anytime you wanted to put a screw in you had to stop 
chop out a stance or something to get your get off your front points hang on one tool clear the ice with with a tool um, either your main tool or or you've already planted that tool taking your hand out and you're using your third tool and then you have to actually chop a, a hole <laughs> and then you have to pull your ice screw off stick it in as hard as you can and then as you're pushing as hard as you can twist it enough so that it starts to bite and then as soon as it starts to bite then you got to take that third tool again and use that to leverage and squeak it in right and i mean i still use some of those techniques today like what i notice is a lot of people think screws are just meant to bite automatically you know especially if it's like softer ice they don't all, you know or just yeah. the temperatures or there's like all mm -hmm. kinds of reasons why they don't always bite i try to tell people well, you can make that just if you tap a little concave like uh, a yeah. cone-shaped hole Something it'll bite, bite like like that right yeah and, and they're like what are you talking about you know and those are skills that we learned back in the day that are kind of lost the lost arts you know yeah and finding a place to stand so you're not all on one arm or mm -hmm. you know whatever like learning how to rest yeah is, is what really made the difference between a good ice climber and a great ice climber was was you know how you could re finding rest finding your rest yeah it's funny i because i teach that in all my clinics of like when you put that screw in you should be also resting yeah like and i'm always big about kicking a side foot like get onto that side yeah. foot because you get off your toes it's game changer like you know and feeling secure and resting but yeah i think there's a lot of people i think it, it is kind of a forgotten art in a way yeah. i think and, and i also learned too like that I prefer to climb that way. Like it's more fluid. It's more movement. It's you, it's flowing with the terrain. It's cause you can with ice climbing, you can muscle your way up stuff back in the day. It was just like you beat the crap out of it and you're strong enough to hang on long enough. Right. Yeah. And I've climbed with plenty of those people and it's no fun. Like they knock everything off. There's ice flying everywhere and they get up stuff and they get up really hard things. But then I think of my good friend, Bruce Hendricks, who I spent a number of years climbing with. And we always joked, like we did probably the hardest, some of the hardest routes in the world that by two guys that couldn't do 10 pull-ups together, <laughs> you know? And it was true because we just learned, I mean, I, I really learned a lot of how to dance on ice and read ice yeah. and, and what makes that. And so I'm really good at reading ice. I've gotten really, really good at reading ice. I can... I've pretty much got like six moves, you know, I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly where every screw's going to go. Typically, not always, you know, things go south quickly, Yeah. but, um, you know, and, and, you know, so when I'm teaching ice climbing, even at the clinic, like at festivals, you know, I can, I can be halfway across the crag at G1 and know exactly where someone's supposed to swing next, Yeah. you know, huh. and it's just from reading the ice. And I, I had to, cause I just, I, I've never been a gym rat. I've never been, I've never huh. been good at training. And so I've had to, you know, got lucky that, you know, in other ways. It's funny. I don't know that I've ever talked to somebody that uh, that's similar, how I look at it as well. As, and I teach that in my clinics. like, before you leave the ground, you should also, you already know where you're going to put your screws in. Like, and I think a lot of people these days, they leave the ground and they're like, Oh, I'm, 
I'm kind of freaked out. I'm a little bit far. I need to put one in. And then they just stop and put one in. It's like, no, you should like, this is a pre-planned thing. Like, yeah, it doesn't always happen that way, but you should have a plan in your head and looking at those spots where you can get a rest and where you can put that screw in. And I don't, I think that's not really a strategy that's taught a whole lot. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I've run across is people, when they run it, they'll run it out or something. Right. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm working on my head. You know, like, I'm like, no, it's the opposite. You need to work on finding gear when it's hard. Yeah. Like, and this is really true in rock climbing. I, I, you know, it's where I learned it. It was, was big, like on, on the, on, uh, Barry just taught me how to say Yamnuska properly, but I can't remember, uh, that's how it's supposed to be said. I spent a lot of time rock climbing on, on Yamnuska and, um, and, I remember going up there and, and friends would be on five eights, you know, like running it out. And I'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh, I'm trying to get my head into, you know, for Alpine climbing. No, the secret to Alpine climbing is not running it out. The secret to Alpine climbing is finding gear when you, when it's not obvious. Yeah. That's the secret to rock Alpine climbing and hard ice climbing. And so I've always had that approach. Just like, and I, I mean, I did plenty of climbs back in the day. I mean, it used to be, 50 meters was kind of the standard length of a pitch back in the yeah. day. Maybe still is in grade six freestanding pillar. That's literally like 30, 40 meters free hanging, you know, as hard as it gets. I remember like on acid how climbing that. And if you could get five screws in on a full pitch, you thought you were doing really, really well. On a full pitch, five screws on a, on a, on a six pitch. grade six plus wow. virgin ice pitch. I mean, yeah, that's got some run outs. I would never, I don't, I don't believe that today. Like that's not yeah. enough, you know, and I got yeah. lucky. Um, but that's kind of what we were dealing with because of those challenges, putting the gear in. I wonder if anybody's ever tested like those old screws and their holding strength versus so, today's. Well, here's a good, so I was hired to be a stunt man for a Korean vitamin company. <laughs> okay. Mr. Ho, I don't remember the rest of his name, but he was the, he was the star. He was the talent. He climbed Everest in South Korean and he climbed Everest and he'd walked to the North pole and maybe even the South pole, you know, like that was his thing. He was like the, the big adventurer for Korea. And I got hired to be the stunt double and they, they shot two commercials. One was a sled. He's like trekking across Antarctica and he falls into a crevasse, but he, and he pops the vitamin pill and then carries on, you know, climbs out and carries on. Right. <laughs> So I did one stunt where I had to tumble down a, a slope at Sunshine Ski Resort, you know, ski up to a cornice and then yeah. have it break off. And then I tumble down. I do the cartwheel down, you know. But the other one was the other one was a big ice climbing fall. Really? So we helicoptered in to the top of the Sorcerer, oh. which is like one of the great routes of the world, right? It, it's yeah. this thing in the Ghost River and, you know, it's four pitches you know, with the last pitch being a longer full on like grade five and then another sort of steeper pitch below that. And then some rambly stuff. So we fly into the top and sit, get set up and they actually made rubber crampons for me. So, so like it looked like I have crampons, but I wouldn't, oh. cause I was like, I'm not going to wear crampons cause I'm going to snag my foot on a fall. Oh, yeah. There's no way I'm doing that. I said, okay, well they, Paid and made it spent 800 bucks and made these rubber crampons that were just enough, right? Pat Morrow was the filmer, uh, 
and Roger Vernon, uh, two kind of legendary filmmakers in Canmore. And a bunch of my friends were, you know, rigging for us and stuff. And we chainsawed out a big piece of ice that was supposed to, and, and then what was going to happen is this, I was going to knock this piece of ice into my chest and it was going to knock me off the climb. And I was going to take this big whipper and then I was going to pop the vitamin pill and then finish the climb and <laughs> climb off to the summit. Right. And so we get set up and we have these, these platforms that they set up on the eye on the vertical ice. And so they had an upper platform with the big chunk of ice that was gonna, they do lots of close-ups, right? But then yep. for the, for the shot, they have to like stage it right now and edit yep. it all together. And so Peter Arabic, I got photos of him with this chainsaw cutting out this big piece of ice. Oh my God. And, what year is this? Oh, this is 93. Oh my God. And, uh, I, can, I think 92 or 93. She's so like hanging off a of ropes off of the sorcerer with a chainsaw cutting, cutting. Well, this, we did the, we did the chainsaw at the top. Like, okay. Cause there's all, right. all these flow, you know, it's like in Cody, yeah. right? There's flowy ice all yep. over up there. Okay. And, uh, little, little, you know, rolls of ice where you could get whatever you need. Anyway. Uh, so we put the camera on the lower platform. I'm on the upper one. So the idea is that the ice thing is going to fall through the frame. They'll drop the big chunk of ice. It'll fall through the frame and then I'll fall through the frame. And, um, and so what we did is we had, okay, so I was going to be, it was a lead fall though. So I was tied into a rope and it went down. It was meant to go down. I ended up taking a 60 foot fall, <laughs> go down to a screw and then back up all the way to the top of the climb so that we had lots of rope, right? Yeah. For impact. But the decision was what screw do you put? What do I fall onto? Right? Yeah. And they had actually shock absorbers. They actually put a bolt anchor in at the top and, and they put some kind of something to help with that. And it didn't even budge when I took the fall. But the point is, is like, so there was very little force on the anchor, but still had to fall onto a screw. Right. Yeah. And, uh, the, the, the Chenard screws were just out like the stainless steel sharper ones with, you know, they could in theory put in with your hand, the big old, mm -hmm. the big hanger that would unclip your carabiners, you know, when you went oh, and yeah. buy it before they yep. figured that out. It's kind of round. This was the first year of those and we still didn't trust them. Oh, so you know what I used was the 28 centimeter original Chenard, um, galvanized, one the ones that you had to squeak in squeak in okay like um that was that's what i trusted so so you asked about the gear if we trusted it and like yeah if you could get it in generally yeah. it's pretty good that's and so i took a 60 deep. footer on this onto one of the the older screws because that's what i knew and what i trusted a 60 so you so so i was hanging so i got on the, the platform and i'm hanging off of it and we got one tight one take right and so and it's all up to me like okay camera speed you know sounds there's no sound i don't think but anyway they like is camera speed like is the film running and as soon as they said that it's like it's on me right to say go yeah and the thing is is like as soon as i say go they drop the ice i have to let go because i'll ruin the shot if i don't follow <laughs> up right so it was like really intense it was really crazy. totally and and roger vernon the film the D, the DOP was like, yeah, you're just like, he's worked in Hollywood. He's like, yeah, that's how the stuntmen do it. 
they're just like they get all jacked up and ready to go and they like you know it's just like it was really interesting oh experience. my god i think i got paid like 2500 bucks for that <laughs> to fall 60 foot on an yeah. ice screw <laughs> and you evidently obviously not that you didn't injure yourself no, no, it was fine. It was and, then, fine. and then i think i can't remember i must have uh had him lower some crampons down to me. And these are strap-on crampons. I had to put yeah. crampons on and I climbed up or something. <laughs> Top rope. Yeah, that, that would have been difficult for me. To, like, even today, to take a 60-footer. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Well, and one of, the, one of the fake ones fell off in the fall. Oh. And so, like, a week later, Jeff Marshall, this famous climber up there, was up there to climb this. And he's like, they found this rubber crampon at the bottom of the climb. <laughs> and like, what story? And I don't know if they knew what we were doing yeah. or anything. but kind of funny oh that's good stuff we got to find those commercials somewhere yeah my friends in canmore or Calgary, and somebody's Canada got it still have it yeah. i think i saw some i don't think i ever saw the finished product but because they oh, went off and shipped off to korea and, yeah yeah never never was in the u.s that's awesome so um at what point so, so let's kind of go back so your first year in your first year of ice climbing you're already starting to knock off some fas uh no, it was the next kind of year. Came that later, was the next, the next year. year. Yeah. Um, Still in school. Yeah. And- yeah. So I um, was doing that. Um, I think it was the next year. I'm pretty sure it was with Carl Nagy. Uh, we did Imaginary Voyage and Cosmic Messenger. And they were his thing. He knew of them. They were Murchison. They're those things that, you know, everyone had driven by forever and no yeah. one really bothered to stop and really pay much attention to. And he's like, yeah, they're in, let's go. And I'm like, okay. So we went and did them. And then I just kind of got, really taught me to start looking around. And so those years, there was all this ice, like on on Mount Wilson and in the Ghost River and all these places where people had been climbing for a long time, but people weren't dissecting it like, definitely like they do now, right? Like I was one of the first that was like, oh yeah, let's look at that gully or that gully. And, and, And oh yeah, you can see it from the car and it's never been climbed. Okay, well, let's go up next weekend. Let's start hiking. And Skiing. well, we thing is, we didn't even have to wait. We didn't have to go that day like you do now to get a first ascent. Yeah. Like, so when you're free, uh, you're free next month. Okay, let's go. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. There. I mean, one of the climbs that um, this is you'll like this story because I was up on the Parkway and. I was, I'd graduated. So I, after I graduated in 1990, I worked for Integral Designs, uh, this gear company in Calgary. So I had a full-time job right out of college and it was, it kept me in Canada. I had a work permit. I was able to get a visa and so I was building sleeping bags and tents and clothing, Gore-Tex clothing for people. And, uh, I'd go up on the weekends. And so I took this guy out to work from work to go climbing. And there was this climb to the right of the lower weeping wall. So there's things that would come in from time to time on the upper wall that we were all kind of looking at, but there was this, this sort of groove off to the right of the lower wall that had formed. And I don't know if it's ever formed since. Huh. And I took this kid up there. He couldn't do it. He couldn't climb the crux pitch, which, you know, this is a grade five. It'd be like people do it in their sleep one arm today. <laughs> you know, it's pretty small or at the bottom. And, uh, so it's like, all right, too bad. So, you know, and I go down and I ran into Bill Plander and Nancy Bouchard who were, um, climbing 
and uh nancy was sort of making you know ice climbing was starting to become something right it was getting more traction there was more in the magazines and videos were starting to get talked about and stuff like that and so nancy was up there to like get a bunch of miles for some video thing she was doing and i met him in the parking lot and i i agreed to go climbing with him the next weekend when i was off so we went back the next weekend and did it but no one else had been no one else had done the you know the route sat there literally 10 minutes from the car on the icefields parkway next to the lower weeping wall for a week or more and no one climbed it i mean it was pretty obvious to tell whether or not someone would climb the snow at the top and yeah you know it was easy to tell so it's like that would never happen today right no and and but it was those it was bill and nancy who first told me about the south fork oh really we were sitting there and they were like have you heard have you climbed in 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 cody and i'm like no because they knew i was i told them where i was from in the beartooth and they're like you must know cody i'm like no what's going on there and they said oh there's climbs just like polar circus lined up and down the valley on both sides and i was like you're full of shit i was like no way i was a i was a kind of a rocky snob about it you know like i didn't know but i was like there's no no way i didn't believe them yeah oh my god that's funny <laughs> little did i know they were telling the truth yeah. maybe not yeah. quite like polar circus all of them yeah but, you know there's some good no. stuff oh yeah nothing's quite like polar circus but. no that is funny um so how many how many first ascents do you think you've oh, I don't know. done not that many i mean is there like any like what is there some notable ones for you like some that really like stand out for you um Maybe one you're particularly proud about. Well, like having done two of the three main routes on the trophy wall, pretty proud of that. I, I figured that would. Um, yeah. I'm proud of the three routes, three, four, three routes I've done on the Stanley head wall. Cause at the time there was, I mean, I'd done three of the five routes on the wall or something like that. There's a bunch of them now, but um, I'm pretty pretty psyched about those. Um, and the trophy wall, the two uh, sea of vapors. Yeah, so that's right above and, um, Banff. And yeah. so actually that was part of like the, the mystique of it. When I came into the Rockies in 87, the Terminator had just been done that, that same year. That's the main Like blow. the winter, yep. before, I showed up in the fall of 87, that winter before is first done had never been seen before was people were thinking it was the first grade seven. Um, it got four cents and, uh, had ne- and so, and it was in the, there's this iconic photo that Tim Odger took of it. And, um, so that was looming in everyone's consciousness for a long time. Would it ever form again? Jeff Everett and Serge Angelucci went up and Aid climbed behind it and got up onto the ice. Oh. And uh, called it T2. And this was before mixed climbing was a thing. You yeah. Know? Like, never, no one ever thought about, well, let's just, they might have put a bolt or two in, but no one ever thought about, well, let's just bolt the hell out of it and free climb. And then, like, they just aid climbed on pitons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> to say they did it, you know? So we never really counted that as an ascent, even though yeah. probably it was. But yeah. at the time, we didn't think to think it was legit. And, uh, 
But then Sea of Vapors formed in 92, came out of the blue. Like there was no ice on it until like mid-February and like in literally three days, the whole thing formed. Really? Wow. Came in. Terminator hadn't formed yet. I think the Terminator was, actually that was the year that Serge and Jeff did T2. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, it was kind of a, a thing. And it was interesting because uh, I was set to go up with Ken Wiley and James Blanch and Barry Blanchard were going to go up as well. I didn't know this, but we were all going to go up the same, turns out the same day. They were living in, I was living in Calgary at the time and Ken might've been too. And then they were in Banff, Canmore, Banff, Canmore. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I knew Barry and, um, you know, we went on to do a lot more. I can't remember where that was in our, but we, you know, we've done a lot of climbing together over the years, but I can't remember where, how much we'd done at that point, but, um, enough. And, uh, and, um, my friend Bruce Hendricks really, 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 really wanted to do it. He was like, he was the one who was like, had the vision. I remember, I mean, Bruce was, Bruce is one of those guys. I remember him long before figure fours were a thing. He was in his home in his, we, I'd hang out with him in Calgary. He was, he was a grad student when I was in college and we got to climb We did a lot of climbing together. Did some of my, one of my favorite first ascents with him, like fearful symmetry. And, and that, that's that whole little cirque is one of my memorable ones. But, um, I remember him going, well, what if, and this is before the stud leashes is like, what if you threw your foot up over your arm to get a rest? And then you could like, and he, I remember seeing him on his floor, on his back, throwing his arms up and his legs up and trying to show me what he had in mind on the floor of his apartment in Calgary. And I just, I remember very clearly looking down, I'm going, you're fucking crazy. Yeah. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I mean, he saw it way before anybody else. Yeah. You don't want to he put your crampon he- foot above your head. I mean, I don't know no. when Jeff Lowe saw it, and he was obviously the first to go do it yeah. on Octopussy, but Bruce was seeing it as early as anybody. And uh, anyway, um, he really wanted, Bruce wanted, really wanted to do it. And so he called up and said, um, said, is there any chance I could come with you and Ken? And, uh, or no, um, how did this work? I can't remember. Oh, so, um, oh yeah. So I know. So he said, um, uh, how did it work? Sorry about this. Um, was fine. There was, we were supposed to go up there and then, um, I just had it. I just lost it. Um, uh oh no this is this is this is how it was is that um no this is how it was i was gonna go this is right this is exactly i remember now ken and bruce were gonna go they were set up to go together i was gonna go as a threesome with barry and and james ken ended up not being able to make it something came up so bruce calls me 
said, what do you think about a foursome? And I'm just like, uh, I don't think it's going to work on that. You know, I don't know. Um, and plus I'm kind of, I'm kind of the third, third to the party with James and Barry. They'd already planned it or something. And I ended yeah. up, you know, getting invited or anyway. And Bruce, was just, he was so heartbroken that he thought he might miss out on that is I just hear it in his voice. And I just called him back and said, why don't you go? I'll just bow out. You go with Barry and James. So they went up there and Bruce led the crux pit. Second pitch is the crux. The first pitch just ice up to the, yeah. Okay. And Bruce did the traverse out and did it. And then, uh, Barry and James had a really hard time on it. And they, they were like, no, we're done. We're not doing this. Cause literally there was, uh, one anchor in 90 meters, like one spot for gear that you could use as an anchor. Oh God. And it was two stoppers and you at your feet <laughs> on this little ledge. And, and so they came down and then Bruce and I, the next weekend went up and did it. And I, Bruce was like, I'm never leading that again. And I said, well, I'll give it a go. And then I let it. And that was the first time I ever climbed with gloves. With gloves. Yeah. I'd spent five years doing all my climbs wearing Dachstein mitts, but I thought this thing is hard enough where I think I better wear gloves. And so I borrowed some gloves, big old fat black diamond puffy thing. (laughs) Thin gloves were not. And I had my glasses on at the time. So there's a photo of me starting the traverse because you go, you have to go below the belay, you traverse over and then you yep. climb up and then it just gradually gets harder and harder and then through the kind of the bulge and then it's easier. But so the crux is above you, but you start out kind of on yeah. this traverse. So really good shot down looking down and I have my glasses on and I get over there and there's literally no ice on it. That's more than like four quarters stacked on top of each other. And I, I got water and shit all over my glasses. So I actually take my glasses off in the middle of the pitch and stuff them in somewhere on my Oh my god! And then finish the pitch, and so it was it was wet too. Then oh, well, just I uh, no, or the wasn't. spray just stuff. stuff. The spray, yeah, yeah just gotcha. Ice and shit, wow. you know. But um, and then uh, yeah, and then Bruce comes up. He does the nest pitch, and then and then there was a little bit at the top, and then we. I remember the anchor at the top included an RP, and then oh, some some version Whoa. of some other ice thing. Yeah. Anchors were not, but then the, the, but then when the replicant came in, um, Tim Poche and, and Keith Haverl and I went up and did that. And I was really proud of that route because, um, Tim named it. The replicant was a great name. The best name. I was always awful at naming roots. Bruce Bruce named that. And, um, it's technically supposed to have the U vapors. Oh, really? Well, he wanted to honor the, the British okay. English spelling. But um, so when we did the replicant, I led the first pitch, which is the hardest is it was probably the most hanging belay I've ever done in my life. I just ran out the rope and then the next pitch had to go off to the side to get around, to get, to get up. So I didn't really want all three of us on that belay for too long. Cause I'm fully yeah. hanging. So I brought Tim up. He started leading 
great six pitch. And then I, so I had him on a stitch plate and then I had a Grigri, I think at the time. And I, so I was belaying Keith up to the belay. So I was belaying a lead climber and a follower, both on grade six ice pitches at the same time. Oh my God. And I'm hanging on a belay in the middle. <laughs> that was really fun. And then Keith got to lead the last pitch. It was great. We all got three great pitches. Oh my God. I'll never forget it, but on an FA too, nonetheless yeah. to be. Yeah, wow. so I'm really, you know, pr- you asked about close calls. Probably the closest call was in that same area. I was on with Simon Parsons on this Lagoot. It's this grade six across the valley, one pitch thing. And we were, I was leading it and I was like just a few meters from the top and this big black cloud came down over the top of me, big wow. avalanche. If I'd been any higher, I might, I would have gotten knocked off for sure. But, uh, there were some friends on the Terminator at the time, or Sea of Vapors. They were all fat that year. And they looked over and they they told me later, they all looked at each other and said, we're about to watch someone die. Damn. And that was the only, that was probably the one of the closer calls. But that first year you asked about that, I, I mean, I had a few moments where looking back, it was like, oh yeah, that was kind of like hanging on one hand, you know? So, so I, at the end of that first year, I, taken my friend Alex who took me on my first climb I led him up his first grade five yeah but there was this little ice at the top and I was like we got to do all of it and we soloed it and I was actually literally hanging by one tool soloing this thing at the top of this you know but it was so fast same thing with this with uh the slipstream so we climbed it and then there's this snow slope at the top that's kind of the one that's what's going to kill you um and I was like, we're not roping up for that. It's more than one pitch. I am not going to be tied to someone if something happens on this snow slope. I just insisted on it. Yeah. And and so we go up, you know, because there was no way to get an anchor in between. You could put one at the bottom, but, but you know. Anyway, um, I get up to the top and I kind of keep going and I get up onto the, the little piece of serac ice that's at the top of the snow slope and i got this rope coiled around me dudley darren darren's below me it's the only climb i ever did with darren and i get up on this thing and it's literally the size of your little box there that's recording all of this and i and it's like whoop three thousand feet down the other side i'm standing on like the knife edge serac red at the top of slip street with no rope oh my god <laughs> and i was like trying to uncoil and there's no way I can get off of it. And so I'm uncoiled. That was pretty stupid. I should have stopped and put the rope on for that. But. So I had, I did a couple things like that, that I think everybody you're maybe too young and dumb to know, realize how close you really came, but I never had any like big wrecks or anything. Yeah. Wow. Any, did you, did you have any accidents in the mountains at all? I had one here in uh, 2000 nine it was a summer mountaineering thing where i joined some friends on the northeast ridge of cowan and we had a great day and uh we were coming down and we were literally three 30 feet from being out of the final gully and i'd been sort of knowing it's a loose goalie in the mountains, sort of managing where everyone was relationship to each other. 
so that we're close. Yeah. And my friend Lizanne was above Leslie and I, and she she was coming across the ledge, and I had Leslie waiting here, and I was going to wait here for everybody. And, excuse me, do the final out the bottom. And Lizanne pulled a big rock out, and she lost her balance, and it hit her in the chest. And the minute she land, the minute she hit the ledge, I saw it later. She she severed her T five, L five, L five. And um, just slid off the thing. And so I turn around, the rock goes by me. I turn around, see her coming. I literally had a moment to, I can either get out of the way or I can step up and catch her. And I stepped up and caught her head from hitting this cliff behind me. And she hit me in the face and we tumbled down. We spent the night together. And, um, and Leslie ran out, got help. But that was the closest wreck I've had. Wow. wow! I got hit with some ice once that Bruce Hendricks knocked off on me on the ter- on the ter- <laughs> on the Nemesis. But oh, yeah, I'm sure you've had a few blocks of ice come your way over the years. Yeah, a few. I mean, that one pissed me off because he really wanted to lead the first pitch, and I was like, because that would set him up for the crux pitch, and I was like whatever i don't care yeah. i've never argued over pitches either like a lot of people like to flip for it right and they <laughs> you know fuck you i'm leading yeah like if you want to lead that's fine i don't you know like there's pl- gonna be i'm gonna have i'm gonna find plenty of hard pitches on my own yeah without looking for them and if you really i mean that's only a couple times i think where i was like i think i want to lead that because i was yeah. just like if you really want to do that, then so be it. Yeah. Anyway, he, he got off belay. He yelled down off belay. So I'm like, okay, he's off belay. But he crawled into an ice cave. So he was off belay. And I thought everything was fine. And then after the fact, he decided that he wanted to make more room. So he, he hit the icicles out of the way, but uh, outward. And so they just came raining down on me like apocalypse. Yeah. Like I didn't know what was happening. You know, I'm just getting my stuff together and getting ready to climb. And it, I thought I broke my arm, but I didn't. Oh, that man. was the really the only injury yeah. I ever had. Huh? That's pretty that good. A broken nose from Lausanne hit me. But <laughs> so, when did you write the? When did you publish the Canadians got the Canadian guidebook? Nineteen ninety four. So I'd been like like the story of me getting there, and I was like the guy who was the most interested. I wasn't the only good ice climber, but yeah. I was the only one who was like just out there every weekend and so i was doing a lot and um and and so i was like well the albie souls guidebook was way out of date it was the second edition of his book waterfall ice and so for like three years i'd been writing updates for the canadian alpine journal been writing like here's all the routes cataloging them and and they published them in the canadian alpine journal and so eventually I just realized, well, maybe, and I, I didn't know how I was going to stay in Canada. I was like, had this work permit, it was expiring and, and everything. And so just decided, well, why don't I go see about doing the guidebook? And I went to the publisher and Albie kind of was a little reticent. He wanted he wanted his name on it. And I was kind of a jerk. And I was like, oh, why would I, why should I? put your name on it when I do it all. Like yeah. He didn't want to do anything, but he yeah. wanted his name on it. And I, you know, thinking back, I might've 
kept his name on it just out of deference to the the work that he did. But I mean, it was completely new. It was completely redone, like yeah. top to bottom. I think I think his last guide had like forty roots, and my first book had four hundred. Yeah, you know, something huh. like that. So um, anyway, we worked it out, and uh, but I learned a valuable lesson. I've learned a valuable lesson about letting go. You know, about like don't keep hanging on to be that guy because that's how you identified yourself. Mm. You know, I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at that. It's just sort of, that's one of the reasons I don't talk about stuff much. I don't, I'm not reliving it. Um, yeah. But, uh, so it came out in 94. And um, I just remember being really disappointed with the cover. <laughs> I hated the cover. Cause the, cause the photo was okay. It was a photo, the publisher chose it. It was a photo of me on a, on a route good, bad, and the ugly. It was just kind of climbing through this overhang and, but he screwed up the color. It was this beautiful shot. Francois Damalano yeah. took it and it was like this amazing blue color. And I had this yellow and red suit on. It was beautiful. And he just made it look like puke, baby puke. It was awful. <laughs> and then all the photos inside, I thought weren't very well done either, but this was early on, you know, and using page maker. I mean, for crying out loud. Oh, wow. You know, but the information was pretty solid. The, hilarious thing is Barry and I were just laughing about this today. There's, there's like any guidebook, there's mistakes in it. And I actually, believe it or not, I have this like weird dyslexia thing where I mix up my left and rights. It's like the worst thing ever as a guidebook writer, right? <laughs> Seriously. I've noticed it. It's a thing. I haven't noticed it. Well, I've noticed it myself. I catch myself, yeah. but there's one, there's a super obscure route in the Bow Valley called arterial spurt. It's just like, I don't even know if it forms very often. It, you know, it's kind of bullshitty little grade three thing. You got a bushwhack and it's just there. It's just one of these things that's everyone sees it. You got to put it in the book. Yeah. Well, I mixed my left and rights. Like you go up one side and it's pretty easy or straightforward, a little trail. The other side's like spiders don't even go there, right? Like it's like, like overgrown moss and like, ugly and so i you're supposed to go up the left i said go up the right so the book comes out what route to barry and troy kerwin what's the first route they go do with the new book is that route and they get it they get all fucked up on their approach so i'm in calgary in this little apartment i was going to this writing program at mount royal college and i get this phone call from barry giving me shit this book is wrong it's such a lie and then i'm like oh god damn it and then i hang up and then the second later troy calls me same thing they they coordinated to call me back to back to give me shit barry's still giving me shit he did it we had breakfast this morning and he was giving me shit about it oh i bet so laughing his head off it was awesome i mean especially like being the american guy that's there and wrote writes a guidebook and i mean i'm sure there's a whole lot of that came later that american thing came later no one was really worried about me doing the first one because there wasn't one and i just did it and it came out and everyone pretty much loved it it's fine i mean people still talk about it yeah um the update i did in 2001 that because people because by then, people could make a name for themselves. And so their egos were getting involved. And people, I mean, it was awful. I mean, you know, Brad Robleski did a profile for me in Climbing Magazine. 
should see the hate mail he got like notes on his car in the parking lot you know someone busted out a window in his car because he was doing a profile on it just because he wrote a profile wow that's some hate yeah and that's a long time ago yeah 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 and there were a whole lot less climbers, water off all ice climbers back then. And still the hate was there, though. Well, yeah, there was this, like, American thing. And, yeah. you know, they were, people were, you know, starting to make a name for themselves. And so they got kind of yeah. worked up about it. And, I, you know, I was, I mean, I was part of, I got caught up in that, too, to some degree. Yeah. But I, my high water mark was already kind of, I was already kind of cresting a little bit at that point. Yeah. And so for you, you, you... What did you do for work while you were in Canada? You obviously went through school. Well, I worked like... at Integral Designs for two years. Okay. And I just sort of lived off what I could write in the book. And then I just started writing articles. I was doing gear reviews. And believe it or not, I did a training article for Climbing Magazine. Joe Joseph's oh. been doing it. He's like the worst, the worst guy in the world. Like <laughs> one of the first training articles for ice climbing. Like, you know using rubber bands to practice your swing and oh really crap. wow okay it was you know, dowels hanging off dowels and shit it was just like uh, yeah shit. that's um, good stuff <laughs> i'm sure i have a copy of it somewhere i have to like yeah, make yeah. a joke of it um and uh just selling photos okay but i basically went bankrupt so I mean, if it wasn't for a hernia, I wouldn't be here today. Well, I might be here talking about something different. Um, I was set up to do the guides exam. And, um, you know, I got, I got, you know, I'd been through a marriage and a divorce and I was just struggling. I was just going broke, writing glove reviews and just, you know, doing whatever I could. Got a few guiding gigs here and there, but I wasn't certified, right? So it was limited on what I could do. I was basically just helping a helper of other bigger projects. So I was set up to do the guides exam and I was going to go fully forward in, in life as a mountain guide. And I didn't pass the physical. It turns out I had a inguinal hernia. Oh, So I had to get that fixed. And um, I remember staying at Barry was on K2 or something at the time I was staying at his house and, re- you know, recovering during that time and um, house sitting for him. And uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't, you know, it was a year later that the guides exam was gonna happen again, right? Like the first first of the time, I think there were six, now there's like 13 or more, but at the time there was like six courses to pass to get to be a full mm-hmm. guy. And uh, I was gonna take the first one. And anyway, I didn't have any, you know, I was, didn't have any more i had saved up some money for it but then i started spent you know living on that money over the course of the summer or whatever or the next year or whatever it was it was um so that was the fall so that was in the fall so i spent all my you know living off that whatever i had for the guides course living off that for the winter and then to the next summer and um jack tackle had been the patagonia sales rep for montana wyoming and we were, we were climbing buddies and um, been to Patagonia together and uh, the Yukon. And he left that position after doing it for a long, long time. And come, I just ended up applying on a lark. I just applied for the job and I had zero sales experience, like none. And it's the single most coveted sales rep position in the country, territory, yeah. right? Um, 
and Rick Hatch took a chance for whatever reason. He he, he saw you know my attention to detail, um, my sort of emotional awareness, um, emotional intelligence. He thought, he said like yeah you can do this. It's eighty five percent details. You know I think my climbing background and my approach to it all really kind of sold him, and I got the job. So I didn't even really think about it much. I just moved back to Montana because I'd been bopping around. I was staying in people's, you know, house sitting. I had no place to live. First like real job. I was $9,000 in debt, credit card debt, had no prospect for a job. I mean, I was a landed immigrant, so I could have done anything. I could have pumped gas if I wanted to, but I was, my mind wasn't open enough to like go outside and do something completely different. Mm -hmm. But, um, so I just, I took the job. I didn't even negotiate the salary. Like they gave me a number and I'm like, okay. okay. Like I didn't know any, I didn't know any better. And, um, and, uh, and that would have been what? Early 2000, October, 1998. Oh, was it 98? Yeah. Okay. So I came back yeah, and then okay. I just, you know, worked the next 340 days. It's a sales rep. Uh-huh. But when I took the job, um, tackle and all the other reps, because they're on the road all the time, they were given December and June off, completely off. So Jack would go to Patagonia in the December and he'd go to Alaska in the in the spring. I thought, well, I'll do that. I can do that, you know. Yeah. Sign me up, right? <laughs> yeah. Climbing the Tetons and everything in between, you know, whatever. Well, by the time I got there, they that that pro deal was that gone. deal was gone off the table. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. And then they, they were going through some restructuring financially. They were kind of struggling a little bit at the time financially. And 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 so like within six months of me being there, they offered everyone in the company, you know, a buyout. Like if you choose to leave now, we'll pay you six months salary. So Patagonia is an amazing company, an amazing opportunity, but I never had that. I, I learned right away that it's corporate America. It's like yeah. a big company. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I don't see it as anything that it's not. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, for a good reason, saw it as this amazing thing. And it, in a lot of ways it is and was and still is, but it was still just a job, right? It was still yeah. like, but I, you know, I, I worked there for five years and, um, and, you know, and by then I kind of come back to Montana and I was the sales rep. So I was uh, involved in the ice festival. Yep. So Barry and I had driven down from Canmore in 97 to do the first, to be the featured speakers at the first ice festival. And te- Barrel Mountain yeah, and teach and- clinics with, with Jack Tackle, who was here at the time. And then, um, and then I was the sales rep for Patagonia, who was the title sponsor for a long time. And back then it was like slideshows and Barrel Mountaineering and like super ghetto compared to today. Yeah. And it was before Thanksgiving. It was the weekend before Thanksgiving. Really? Yep. Great ice. I remember, yeah, I remember like running into Kelly Cordes. I was teaching at G2 and Kelly Cordes is coming down. They were working on the first descent of Zach Attack, which is now Zach Attack. And I was like, he was like, how's the climb? I was like, how's the climb? Was, oh, it's really, really good. And I was like, bullshit. Kind of like, it's like, yeah. It's like, ah, it's crappy. And it, it turns out, yeah, it's really good. It's like probably my favorite route and highlight. You know, it was years later that I did it with yeah. Matt Callis. But, um, you know, like, so, I mean, it was early season because what would happen is the road wasn't plowed and yeah. it would get snowed in after, as this, as, as December starts to roll in. And so 
if you didn't do it early, you couldn't get up there. But then, and we didn't ever worry about ice. There was always ice at Halloween, you know? And so by Thanksgiving, by the week before Thanksgiving, no problem, no problem. Yeah, Plenty of ice. Not a problem. And that's, that's not the case anymore. Uh-uh. So, um, and then, and then, um, so I was, in, I've been involved in the ice festival since day one, really. Um, and then kind of got more involved in 2006 when a bunch of things kind of came together and they needed some direction. And I sort of got more involved at that point. And it's yeah, a whole what, other story, but I remember I've, I've heard the stories of people sledding into highlight, like snowmobile. And yeah. And so you could snowmobile. Yeah. Um, I know I won't mention their name, but I, I know if somebody that said, yeah, that they would snowmobile into like to the base of twin falls and like, you know, park right at the base. Yeah, they never like did that. that. They'd snow- or, or maybe it wasn't twin. It was one of them. Like they could basically people, people have gone about halfway up to dribbles, but that's, that maybe that's is a little was. over overstated. I think so. Okay. Yeah. It's not, but, um, yeah. So, you know, when I came back, I, you know, I'd been, you know, 97, part of my decision to just take the job was, you know, I'd, you know, I'd done a lot of ice climbing. Um, I mean, there was one winter when I was working in Tegels and I had a full-time job. I did a hundred thousand meters of ice wow. in one winter. That's a lot of ice. That's a lot of ice. All on the weekends. Really? Yeah. Just got after it. I was going through partners like crazy. I mean, that that's yeah. including a couple alpine, big alpine routes too. But, yeah. Um, like did the first winter ascent of the strain. First one day winter ascent of the strain. For all, it's the first first one day winter ascent of the Andromeda strain. It's like I pulled on I pulled on gear at the crux because that's what you did. I had no idea that a free ascent was a thing. <laughs> yeah. Like I could have easily done it free. I pulled yeah. on a sling. You know, but I just can't give myself credit yeah. to say I did it. But you know, yeah, I remember nineteen ninety five when I first swung tools. The guy that took me out, he would maybe like every other screw. He would he would hang on a tool, clip himself into the tool, and then put the screw in, and then unclip, and then keep going. Yeah, <laughs> and I just like, oh, okay. That's how you I, do that, it? I didn't know any better. I had no. I mean, I. But well, and I, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, I remember. The first, you know, I started to, you know, bail on things and like say, I can't finish this pitch. Yeah. You know, like I remember John, John Sherman once on this grade six pitch, like trying to do the second ascent of this thing. It was like, yeah, I can't, I can't finish this. Yeah. I will fall. Wow. You know, yeah. and, um, you know, that mentality saved my life on Kitchener. Hmm. Um, definitely. Was it hard? Was it difficult to leave Canada? I mean, obviously, you'd made a name for yourself. You'd written a guidebook, and like to uproot yourself from Canada could not have been like, you know. I mean, almost every climber has ego involved, and like that would have been. I, I feel like that would have been a really difficult thing for you to do. It was really easy, actually. Really, because um, I was starting to say I, I had done the year before. I'd done. I house sat in Santa Fe for a friend who was on in the Himalayas because I didn't know where I didn't know where else to live, right? So I went down yeah. there, and then Jack, and then I went to the I went to France to climb a bunch of stuff. Um, my partner got injured, had a hernia of all things. Um, but because um, I because I because yeah, so I I um 
I had that hernia the year before, had it fixed, and then I was just going broke, right? And then I did all these expeditions, oh, okay. right? So I kind of went sideways on my story there. And so I went to France, and then I went to Patagonia, and Jack and I made two big attempts on the west face of, of Fitzroy that hadn't been climbed at the time. And, you know, we're, wall climbing is not our strength, so we ended up doing the Super Coolar, which is an amazing route. Yeah. It's just most incredible climb. I still remember every pitch, 28 pitches. I remember every one of them. <laughs> and uh, we had this massive epic to get down. We were lucky to get down. We ended up repelling over something the size of Half Dome in the complete storm. <laughs> Used all our gear. Um, and then I went to the Yukon to go climb the south face of Logan with Jack and we had a big epic there on the, we climbed the East Ridge and then got caught in a storm for six days and ran out of food. And then I ended up going back into the other side of Logan on that same trip with Steve House and we did the first ascent of King, the southeast face of King Peak. Oh. So like that, that was a real high watermark too because, you know, grade six pitch at 15,000 feet. Yeah. Legit grade six. Significant, on this, yeah. Did the sixth ascent of the peak overall. I was really proud of that. I spent I spent a long a lot of years trying to climb that mountain. And I really yeah. am fulfilled by having done that. Yeah, um, I can see and I wanted to climb the North Face. It's got the most amazing North Face you've ever seen. Um, that's what I really obsessed about. And I'd gone up there with Barry to do that once. And thank God I was able to like redirect my energies because that the North Face is just I think it's unclimbable. It's too dangerous. Wow. It's covered in seracs too. Yeah. Um, but I, again, that's part of, I think me rethinking how I'm doing things and my climbing. And so I used a lot of what I learned in those, those, those single push things with Steve house and Steve was doing those with Mark and Alex, you know, there was kind of a lot of that going on. Alex I think was doing a little bit of that. I think no, Alex was, Alex died in 99. So he, you know, yeah. but, uh, um, so my point is, is I was, I was trying to do all these, I was trying to be the guy, right. Do all these expeditions, but I was broke. And I remember really questioning what the hell I'm doing. Like, why, what am I chasing here? And, um, it was really unfulfilling. And that's why when the Patagonia job came up, I just, didn't even think twice about applying and didn't thought even less about taking it. Really? Um, you know, if I thought, if I had thought about it more, I probably, I might've really, I might not have taken it cause I would have realized I was leaving Canada. Like it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be spending a lot of time in Canada still. Yeah. It was just Alberta, you know, yeah. I, it was my home. I couldn't, you know, I, I guess I didn't really think about it much, but I think, um, look, so I was, so I wish I could say I was more intentional about those decisions, but as I look back on my life and as I look forward to, to make new decisions moving forward, I realize that, that that's what drives me a lot is just sort of rethinking myself, what I'm doing and why. Cause I remember early on in my climbing career when I was hanging out with a lot of, I mean, you know, named climbers, I remember being in, in this crag up in Canmore one summer, the dream team was up there on some work thing. They're all there, all the North Face athletes. Yeah. And we were all climbing, rock climbing in this little 
Grassy Lakes, right out of Canmore. And there's this guy there with his shirt off, and he was trying to impress his girlfriend by showing how much he knew about climbing. He had a climbing magazine. And I was just like, dude, if you slow down a little bit to, to look around, half the people in that magazine you're going on with your girlfriend about are in this canyon right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, so it was like, sorry, I digress. But my point is, is that um, what I did is I learned that a lot of those folks, like everything was climbing. Climbing was it. Like they're either on an expedition or they're planning an expedition and everything in between is waiting. Hmm. And I'm not naming names because I, you know, people I love and, and really respect, but I, I felt like, and maybe I'm wrong, but just me observing them, we never really talked about it, but I, they seemed miserable when they weren't climbing. Yeah. I mean, we all know people like that, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I promised to never be that guy. I didn't want to live like that because I'd probably be dead to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, like climbing was the addiction. And, and if you if you weren't taking that drug, then reality kind of sets in. And I mean, I think a lot of people climbing is the escape, right? But I think you can take it to a a level in the same way a drug addict can can take things to another level as well. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. When you're not doing it, then it's like, fuck my, this is like, what's what's going? What am I doing with my life? Yeah. 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 And I think it becomes a struggle for for some people. I, uh, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about for sure. Um, and how, yeah, I mean, I, that's mentally got to be taxing. How, how, how are you funding all of these things? Are you well, so that, 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 that spree of expeditions, I mean, I got a polar tech grant for going, I went to Newfoundland too. I forgot all about that. We went to Newfoundland oh. to, to explore gross morn. One of the early trips to Newfoundland. I was one of the original people that figured out Newfoundland was, had a thing for ice yeah. And I made two trips, but I could never, you know, Joe Tavarecki, one of them was with Joe and Casey, but they ended up spending, you know, they, they, they figured it out even more than we did. But, yeah. um, uh, so I got some money. I think we got some money for that. And then I got a polar tech grant for Logan and I got a mug stump grant for King peak, just enough to cover the nut. But I was, like I said, when I moved back to Montana, I was 10, nine, $10,000 in debt credit card debt with no viable income. Wow. You know, was there a point for you that you like made the decision, like pursuing climbing in the same way you had for those previous years was no longer going to be your, your, your priority and the priorities changed. Well, I, you know, I was doing a number of guidebooks. I wrote, wrote some climbing guides, rock climbing guides to the ghost and uh, bull Valley and stuff. So I was, but even that wasn't really making anything to speak of. Um, yeah. You can't say you made your first fortune in guidebooks. No. I went bankrupt <laughs> twice. Didn't I? Um, but uh, I, you know, making money, I never made money as a climber. I made money as a photographer and a writer, but I never made money as a climber. Yeah. Not a penny. Yeah. Not many people. I mean, it's, even in today, it's not an easy thing to do if you're really going to make that your yeah. thing. And, you know, there wasn't, I mean, the dream team, the North Face team, Conrad and Alex and Jay Smith and Kitty and all of them, you know, and there were people like Lynn Hill and Peter Croft that were making money and some of the Europeans, but 
North America, there really wasn't anybody. Yeah. yeah. So, so I never really, really thought of climbing as a way to make a living. I, you know, I, writing and photography is what I was trying to do, but that was hard. Yeah. You know, you get lucky to get a little extra scratch, you know, along the way. So it didn't really occur to me that, that I should stick it out. I mean, when the job, this first real job, you know, or not real, you know, I mean, the integral designs was a real job, but I didn't make very, you know, I was making 11 bucks an hour or something. Yeah. How did, uh, how did you balance climbing in relationships? I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I married my first wife, just my girlfriend, so I could stay in Canada. And, you know, we tried, but it was, I wouldn't have never married her if it wasn't for that. And, you know, we wouldn't have never, we weren't ever meant to be together yeah. last. I just didn't have very many, you know, I just climbed. Climbing was it. Yeah. Wow. You know. And then when I moved back here, I, I got married again. Yeah. <laughs> like the joke, I went to Canada and got married and divorced, moved back to Montana and got married and divorced. But, um, you know, uh, I was working for Patagonia and, you know, made sense at the time. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to people when it comes to like climbing in relationships? And I think it's a challenge for a lot of people of you know figuring that out i mean because a lot of people want to do yeah they want it like it's climbing and nothing else and then there's people that you know try to balance it i don't i don't i don't think there's any perfect answer but i'd be curious of what what you've learned oh man everybody's different every relationship's different you don't know what goes on between people um you know i've seen i've seen people i have a good friend who he was gonna he, he'd been seeing this woman for a while she was great she's great is great he was gonna break up with her because she she didn't fit some he wanted to go live in a van and climb you know oh. find the climber you know girlfriend <laughs> that he was gonna climb with all the time and you know live the dream right and i remember me and some other friends who were close to them at times like shaking our head like Slap, want to slap him right he ended up figuring it out and they're married now and have kids and they have a great life and you know yeah. he thankfully he figured it out in time but you know anyone who thinks that you know living that dream is freaking hard you know there's people like jeff and pretty right who are amazing the way that they pull it together you know like they're really inspiring yeah. but they they really see they have similar athletic goals and reasons why they climb and you know they they clearly communicate well together. That's probably the biggest thing. Um, There's such an anomaly, though. Yeah, exactly. Like, nobody should look at that and be like, "That's what I want," because that is not. Yeah. One, it's not for everybody. Um, and I think uh, Jack and I actually talked about it too. There's also when you have that type of relationship, it also creates competition and creates other issues. Um, but they've got to figure it out for sure. Like, but nobody should say that that's kind of what, like to say that's what you want is wishing in one hand. And, and, and being, being support, truly supportive and comfortable with your partner and yeah. what they do and the choices they make. Like, I think you think about like, there's the stereotype of men who can't handle a, a wife who makes more than them. Yeah. You know, it creates these dynamics that are just fucked up. You know, I think, so you, I think whether, whether you're a climber or whether you do anything in life, it, 
it manifests it's, those things manifest in their own ways you know and so i i mean i i have bottom lines i have zero advice for on a, <laughs> this microphone and you and this wall yeah. you know in that water bottle i don't know like if i if you and i sat down and talked about specifics or or yeah. you shared with me some intimate like emotion yeah i might be able to like share listen yeah and 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 reflect back on you know, sort of if i have anything to connect with you on in that way and it may or may not be helpful but beyond that I, unless we did that there's no way i can tell i can't say anything about it yeah yeah i mean i think it's your story of your friend is i mean i i i did that same thing with my my current wife like it was almost like too good and i thought there was like that that was what i wanted right was that climbing partner and yeah and I actually even broke up with her, and and, I, and my buddy was like, well, "Why'd you break up?" I'm like, "I don't know. It's just like, I feel like there's something better." Like he's like, "Well, what's wrong?" And I'm like, "Well, there's nothing really wrong." Yeah, I think I just want this. Yeah, and and it, it was and it, it was very didn't take very long for me to realize what a freaking idiot I was. Like, yeah. she knew what she was getting. She knew what my passion was. She was totally okay with that. Super supportive of it. Yeah. She didn't need to have it at the. She didn't need to have my passion didn't need to be her passion um as long as she was supportive of that was really key but it was like it you almost i almost had to lose it to realize what i had lost yeah and then you're like you know luckily she took me back for me i get as much out of my i've been with paula now 11 years i get as much out of that as i got i've gotten out of any climb yeah you know and more so you know like it's like the work i do now like there's a certain intensity to it that that replaces anything I got on a climb. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, a lot of climbers probably can't understand that, but and I think that's part of my that approach that I take, where it's it's more about the emotional, intellectual journey than it is about anything physical. And um, I still get out in in the mountains as much as I can. Um, that definitely, I have a you know want to feed that that part of me because that's you know I'm a peak beggar at heart. I mean, I just there's nothing more that I love than being out. And so I, I really look at approaching my, all my endeavors in that way where it's, you know, stimulating different parts of my brain, I guess. I don't know, but, um, I don't, you know, like I have all these examples of that, but I don't know. Um, like all that, the you know, it's a climbing podcast. So, you know, to bring it back to climbing is, you know, all those single push things we were doing. And what I, what I started to do was realize like Jack and Jeannie Wall and I, we climbed the East Ridge of Mount Logan. It was my, I've done five, well, now I've done seven trips up there. That was like my fifth trip up to Mount Logan area. And it was all ostensibly, it was to just acclimatize to do the South face. which is like the dream route and and the weather went south and we we barely got down it was all we could do on that trip to just get off the east ridge but i remember looking back going that was the most beautiful route i've ever done it was amazing i would go do it again and i remember jack going oh it's the most longest climb i've ever done without belaying a pitch you know he was all (laughs) grumpy about it and i was like that was amazing yeah. And I spent the whole time looking at the south face of MacArthur. And and I started thinking about that face 
in that mountain. And so I started approaching thing. And then I went and did King peak, which was like right on the edge technically and all that stuff. And I just, for Steve, like he was like, he pushed it. He kept doing bigger and bigger things like on Denali and harder and more remote. And I went the other way where I said, I'm done with that part of it, but I want, I still want that emotional intellectual challenge. So what I started doing is doing moderate routes with no gear, no tent, no sleeping bag. Like the things that normally people would take a week's worth of food. And of course they'd have to chop a ledge and spend a week because the storm would come in invariably. Right. And they'd have to, you know, and then Mm -hmm. they'd do like a little grade four or whatever. And it end up in an Alpine journal, back of an Alpine journal. But I'd go and I'd turn them into these emotional experiences that were just amazing, you know, and that all culminated on the North face of MacArthur, which was like an 8,000 foot ice climb. And you you drop the pot, you know, you're fucked. Yeah. Right. We've done, I did that. You know, you have to like, so it's all about making decisions in, in your, in, in like testing your emotions and your, in your, in your, in your motivations. And, and it's not about, can I climb this hard pitch or not? You know? So, and then I brought that back to the Beartooth. When I came back to Montana, I started doing that in the Beartooth. Yeah. You know, I would leave, leave home at, after work on Friday, go have dinner with my dad in Big Timber, end up at a trailhead in the Beartooth at 10 o'clock at, on a Friday night, and then start walking hmm. and be on a summit, you know, at sunrise. Yeah. And a lot of those were all by yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah, because my climbing it. friends, it wasn't hard enough and cool enough. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to carry a lot of gear because, you know, you're just... So my climber friends weren't interested, and my hiker friends thought it was crazy hiking at night in bear country, so I ended up doing it by myself. <laughs> I could, I, yeah, that's really f- interesting to say that because I have found lately, like I, I enjoy soloing moderate stuff, and like I, it's very fulfilling for me. And I wonder, it's, I never thought of it in, in the way that that you described it there, but that makes total sense of how I'm connecting with it. Like I don't know that I need to push the hardest ice route or to you know take the most extreme danger anymore or whatever but I, I fulfilling it's pretty fulfilling to just go to the mountains by myself and yeah not push myself but i'm you're it's a different connection when i was writing this house uh the house highlight the guidebook to highlight i you know i had to get it done and i had to you know and i had all this information to figure out my most fulfilling days i had three or four of them and they had nothing to do with going and climbing a route. Like, like the initial instinct is, I got to go climb everything, or I got to climb all these hard routes and figure it out. It's like, no, I just went by myself and did all the approaches, and then I traversed the cliff. Like I'd do big loops, and I'd go under every single route, and I'd make notes, and I'd be post holing the whole way, and I'd end up back at the car, totally soaking wet, exhausted. And they, and, but I got, I got it done. I got the information. I got the photos. I figured it all out that I needed. And I go back and I put it into the guidebook and it was really good. If I had just been focused on the climbing itself, the guidebook would be a fraction of what it is. Yeah. And those were really fulfilling days. I loved it. Huh. Hmm. We might need to take some of that advice for myself. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Like I can see it all day long. You get caught up, you're like caught up in new routes or I got to, I didn't climb, I haven't climbed that one yet. I got to go climb it. The best guidebook writers are not the ones who do all the climbs. I promise you that. Hmm. Yeah. I think my answer is going to be have, 
getting the uh, the help of my wife to help write it because yeah. she loves writing. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the yeah. key is figuring that out. And maybe actually her and I going out to, to gather some of that would be cool too. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, what advice would you give to a climber that's maybe just started ice climbing in the last few years? Like, you know, what, what do you, if they're saying like, Hey, Jojo, I want to, I want to climb, I want to climb harder and I want to go do all these things, you know, and I've got a, but I also got a full-time job or whatever it is. I mean, what, like, what are some of the things that come to you if a young, young ice climber comes and, and says, what's your advice for me? There's not really a right or wrong answer. So yeah, I know. don't quit your day job. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really pretty that's damn good trite, advice, you know, it's, yeah. it's hell, but, um, uh, it's all about who you're climbing with. Like think about who you're climbing with and focus on that. And it doesn't matter what you climb after that. Yeah. Like when I, when I, when I was asked to, to be part of the 50 favorite climbs book by Mark Cruz, I, I had a hard time picking the route that I did because it's the hardest Alpine climb I've ever done. And I didn't want to be that guy who, you know, says, Oh, he just picked the hardest climb uh, North, the wild thing on Kefren. I was the first one to lead the Crocs without falling. And, you know, we did the second ascent and it was this amazing experience. And it was the, it was the first climb I ever did with Grant Statham and Sean Doherty. I'd known him for years. Like we went to school with Sean and, and I'd known him for years, but we connected on this climb and I picked it for one reason. It wasn't because it was the hardest thing or we had this epic or anything like that, but it was because of my connection with those two guys. It's that's why it's my favorite climb. It truly took that to heart. I mean, the Logan was clearly, I I mean, that was a tough one not to pick because the East Ridge of Logan is probably a better climb yeah, and more deserving to be in a book that uh, of climbs that people should go do. Yeah. But, um, I picked it, you know, because of just the experience that we shared on that climb. Hmm. So my advice to anybody would be just focus on that because every time that, I felt like I've gotten drug out on something that I didn't want to do. I've resented the people for it. I didn't have fun. Um, (laughs) And, you know, and, and and you need to have people that you are happy to be with because then you can make the decisions that you're going to have to make that are going to save your life or theirs. Yeah. And, And, and come back another day or whatever. And so, because if you keep, if you get out enough, things will happen you will have to make decisions in the mountains that are going to have long-term implications. Yeah. And, you know, I'm actually surprised more people don't get in trouble out there. <laughs> there you know, yeah. a lot of people are making good decisions, which is good, you know? Yeah. Especially this day and age where you can be really strong without having the skill set to get yourself yeah. in and out of situations, but you yeah. can, it's, you're climate, you're, you're strong enough to get to those bad situations, but it is, it is impressive that we don't have more, more accidents. And I think that was thankful for, you know, had a lot to do with me. Like I burned through like in the Rockies when I was doing all that climbing, I didn't have very many, I had a lot of partners, but I didn't have a, yeah. Bruce and I really connected and Barry and yeah. I on, you know, I connected with a few people, but we weren't climbing together all the time by any means. Yeah. Cause we just, they had lives or other things going on and whatever. So I think it really, um, 
it's one of the reasons why I probably slow started to slow down and started to you know think about you know opening up to other alternatives like moving back to Montana. Yeah, I don't regret it huh. a minute. Nice. Um, I have one last question that is from a listener, and they want to. Are ask they listening you, right now? No, not oh. right now. Uh, but uh, they, I, I had put a post out for people that had questions for you, and, oh. and one that really resonated was, cool. how did you, how did you push through the water ice six grade? How did you push through to climbing water ice six? Just kept climbing. It just, just were like, uh, we would just get out and go climbing cool routes. Like starting as soon as it came in, it wasn't like today where everybody's climbing the hardest routes right off the couch, right? Because they're so fit, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that might have happened back then, but it wasn't me. We would just go climbing and then and climb as much as we could. As, as long as we were motivated, we were out there all the time. What's in, you know, and wanting to do different things. And before you know it, look back like, holy crap, I just climbed French reality, <laughs> you know, on the Stanley Headwall, or I just did the fourth ascent of the Riptide, or the seventh ascent of Terminator. I mean, some of the routes, you know, like they're in, you got to go do it, but like yeah. the Terminator. But um, I just like that first big winter, you know, where I was just climbing. Next thing I know, I, cl- I just let a grade five. So huh. mostly it's just about letting it come, na- let it come to you. Yeah. Wasn't intentional. Yeah, we yeah. just climbed. Our intention was to climb cool routes and do as much as we could, and it just came. I mean, we're, I was in the Rockies, so you had a choice, right? You had a lot yeah. to choose from. So I guess it might be different for somebody who's stuck somewhere where you know it's limited. But um, just get out and climb as much as you can, and don't worry about the grade. And 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 if if it is something you know, if it is something you really want to pursue, go to a place like the Rockies or the South Fork. Um, where there's big, long grade sixes yeah, and, and just climb and go to that spot and climb there. Don't work. Don't get too caught up in like, I got to do that route while I'm here because you never know what might be going on. Right. Yeah. Like, I've had really bad luck in the South Fork. I've <laughs> like, I have not done well in the South Fork. I've been there for years. I've been a lot of places there, but I've never really had a lot of luck getting, I mean, I've done a couple second ascents and stuff, but other than that, I like, cause I just, things haven't worked out and I'm yeah. okay with that. I'm like, yeah. I, I've let go of that. Like I've always, I kind of beat myself up for a while and I finally realized what's the point. Yeah. And um, same thing with highlight. I've had some massive spectacular failures in highlight mm. on, on the hard routes. Yeah. Huh. I think that's kind of rolls into the same advice you had earlier too. So <laughs> just go out and yeah. Have a good time and focus on that instead of the grade and everything yeah. else. Yeah, and, and wherever, yeah, it'll come. And if you're that driven, then you'll find it. Yeah, you'll plan a trip to the Rockies or Iceland or France or wherever they are. <laughs> awesome. Uh, any any, you know, as we kind of close things up here, uh, I guess I do have one last one. Promise my last question. Who who is your hero? In the climbing world. In the climbing world. Well, I've always, I always thought, I always told myself that I didn't have heroes because I was, I had heroes growing up that let me down. But, you know, growing up, 
I mean, all I knew about climbing was what I read in Outside Magazine and National Geographic. So Reinhold Messner, John Roskelly, and Jeff Lowe, those were the only people that I ever knew about. I've met John and, and Jeff. I met Reine once, but um, Reinhold, but it was some event. I was just another guy. But, uh, but I wouldn't really call them heroes. They were the people that I knew climbed. Um, I... I'd have to say Barry Blanchard's probably, if I had to pick a name, he's survived. Yeah. Really. And it's not, that's not why he's my hero, but, um, I, I'll just never forget. I mean, the, the stories that we share and his enthusiasm of like, he and I can, we had breakfast this morning and, and like we're telling stories and he's laughing and I've seen him do the same thing with people he's just met. Right. Wow. And, and I remember, I remember meeting him in the Rampart Creek hostel and he was talking to people and talking about doing the first ascent of the strain and the hockey with off with and hockey stick off with and how they used to cut hockey sticks for protection to put in the crack. Oh my and, God. and, and then, but then what really, what really stood out to me is when I soloed grand central Coolar. 1994 I'd I'd been wanting to do that for the longest time and I'd gone up there like four times four or five times and I thought I was all caught up about it and angst I was like well shit that's how Mark Twight does it right that's what I gotta do and I never felt right and and um but then when I did it I just like everything I felt I knew that I'd been climbing a bunch I knew the conditions were good and I just went I just now, and I took my time. I stayed at the hostel on the way up there and I took my, I actually drove to Jasper to, or to the ranger station and I actually signed in. I'd never done that before. Like let them know huh. where I was. And I put the, 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 the sheet on my, on my window sheet on my, on the car. And I went up there and I had this like really profound experience. And I took a 80 footer and right off the top, the hardest I was going to do the the the, the Lachlan direct. Oh, okay. And yeah. I was gonna I started up on it with no rope, and I I soloed the first crux, and this was the the last one, and I down climbed and put in a belay, and I fell off it. Holy shit! Right onto the right onto the belay, because and I was gonna like put in one screw. Said no, if you're gonna do this right, put in two. One screw probably would have failed. And uh, it was one of these where you tie into one end of the rope and you just give yourself a bunch of yep. slack. So you got to kind of give yourself slack as you go. Yep. And uh, and then I went back up on it. I hyperextended my back. I kind of fell sideways. It was vertical, so I didn't hit anything. And uh, hyperextended my back hit my, when I fell, my feet were still on the ice and a tool popped and, and it, it was really thin. It was like hitting rock. I hit my elbow on my thigh. So I thought my leg might've been, you know, I just like bruised it. Anyway, I was all kind of seized up. But I, I found the way, I found an, another way off to, or off to get up. I went this other, it's a long story on why, on why I was where I was at and, and, 
what I knew about the root. I actually found there's three ways to finish it. And I found the one that I wanted originally. I found it and did it um, and topped out. But then I got back to the car and I left all my stuff. I bivvied at the base. You know, I got up at 8, 8, 8.30. I was like, why should I walk up a glacier in the dark and fall in a crevasse when I can't see anything? I'm just going to go when it's daylight. <laughs> you know, and I was on top before noon or something and, and, and came down, but I left all my stuff. I get back to the car and I just had this experience, right? And there's a note from Barry, very distinctive handwriting. And it just said, anyone can solo it in this conditions, butthole. <laughs> Cause it was really good. And, Oh and, my God. And, and he, and he was like guy, he was camped out at, at, down the road at the campground in the park, Icefields Parkway, Athabasca with clients. And so I stopped in and he gave me some soup, but I'll just never forget his humor. Like his, his humor in that moment was exactly what was needed. But then when I sat there and I was just all seized up and like, you know, sore, I ended up going to the doctor and I was fine. I didn't know what was going on. Right. But at the time I just never forget him sitting there looking at me like, like the dad figure, like proud dad, you know, like he made this joke that was perfect in classic Barry humor, but just the way he looked at me and, and what he knew I'd been through without even asking any questions, knowing what I'd been through was like, that cemented our bond, our bond forever. I think right there, and and um, you know, I I love the man with all my heart and soul. Wow. I, well, that's a great story. I and I can't think of a better way to end because we should probably start getting over to go watch. Yeah, yeah. His film. Yeah, there was the a Emerson. lot we talked about before you hit record that I was hoping I know. to share about ice threads and stuff like that that I was involved with. I, but uh, I think we're gonna get yeah. back. To, we're gonna have to do a part two. It's for a wide sure. ranging. Yeah, stories. I don't like like I think I said I don't talk about this stuff much. So when it starts coming yeah. out, I never know where it's going to go. <laughs> no, it was, it was great, and I think uh, it just left room for a for a part two for yeah. sure. Well, thanks. I really appreciate what you're doing here, Aaron, and um, and and you know what you're doing in the South Fork, and um, I remember climbing with you early on and back in the day, and it's glad to see. It's really cool to see where you've come all these years well i appreciate that i think uh for sure you came into my life at a point where uh you know needed a little bit of mentorship and some guidance because i was a little did i say anything that was helpful i don't I, oh yeah i think you did i mean i was a little i was a little cocky and 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 um you know i mean i thought you know i, I yeah i had an ego i mean at the age that i was in my early 20s and you know i mean it was good to have somebody kind of be like hey dude you know you're just like uh, you know, it's just a South Fork here, and there's a lot of other stuff going on. And I think just the conversations we had—you probably don't even remember—they were probably nothing to you, but they meant something to me. Yeah, good. Um, and uh, they were long-lasting, and good. and definitely looking back now, they've, they've they've helped bring me where I'm at today. So, well, I, I think we have a distinct dis, uh, distinction of the one the route, the one route we did together was probably the worst route in the South Fork. <laughs> So we got that bond, right? Yes, for sure. Yes, 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 100%. Yeah, we, uh, and I think we always wanted to get other stuff done. Yeah. We just never quite, yeah. well, never we don't have to go it. back there anyway. No, no, we don't have to go back. 
Yeah. Uh-oh. Well, thanks, Jojo. Thank I uh, appreciate your time. And uh, let's, go, let's go watch Barry's film. Let's do it. Thanks, Jojo. Right, take care. Bye.